Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome to the podcast. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, James Michael Dorsey. Good morning, James. Good morning. James is an explorer, author, and photographer who has traveled extensively in 40-some-odd countries, mostly far off in the wilds. His primary interest is in documenting indigenous people in Africa and Asia, and is a certified marine naturalist, a prolific writer, uh, has many articles and three books that have earned him many awards. He is a fellow of the Explorers Club and a member and former director of the Adventurers Club. And in reviewing his history and, and his works, uh, I think the term that best suits you, James, is cultural explorer. Now, we're going to be talking about the uh, Hadzabi people of uh, Tanzania in Africa. Yes. So I'd like to welcome you with that traditional Hadza welcome of Mentana Bawa. Did I get that right? I think you got it right. I don't know what the correct reply is anymore. It's been so long. <laughs> now, the podcast is Whiskey and a Map. And before we get too far down the line, do you have a good drinking story for us? <laughs> oh, yeah. There's always a drinking story. Um, I was in, uh, well, I started in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and I was headed south into the Omo Valley because there are more uh, diverse tribes there than in any other section of Africa. But about halfway down the country, I went up into the Guj Mountains, G-U-G-E, I believe they're called. At about 7,000 feet, there's a tribe there called uh, the Dorje people, and that's spelled D-O-R-J-E. Interesting about them is they build these 40-foot-tall huts out of thatch that look like an elephant's face. And that is because of three, 400 years ago, there were lots of high-altitude elephants on those mountains, and the people lived in perfect harmony with them, and they still treat them as some deities, and so they build their huts to look like elephant faces, and I wanted to go and see this. And so when I got there, it was a Saturday afternoon, and everyone is out, was out in this giant field, and they were smoking and drinking, and uh, they were drinking this yellow liquid that turned out to be a honey wine. And they wanted me to join them, so I did, and I was trying to be polite and sip, but they kept insisting I drink more and more and more until I got rather drunk. And uh, they helped me into one of their huts where I slept for a few hours. When I woke up, there was a drum beat. And I went outside and it had gotten dark. There was a large fire in the center of the village and the people were starting to dance and beat drums. And when I woke up, they took me out there. They sat me down in the middle and they gave me a big drum. They wanted me to play. And they kept handing me this, this honey wine to drink all the time. So I was. So I started beating this drum the best I could, and I thought I was doing one great job. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, I realized all the music around me had stopped. The dancers had stopped, and everyone was staring at me. 
And one elderly lady just walked over. She took my drum away from me and gave it to a young boy and motioned for me to just sit there. And all the drumming started again and the dancing started. And that was the end of that. I wasn't allowed to play the drums anymore. A short African musical career. I had a little too much honey wine that day. <laughs> you've, uh, you've obviously have traveled extensively, and we're going to get into a lot of that. What sets you on this path, this life pursuit? I had been doing the normal tourist travel for many years with my wife. We'd been to all the great cities of the world, and they all started to look the same, and I was more interested in the people. And uh, I, that's when I discovered, uh, like, the Explorers Club in New York and the Adventurers Club in L.A. And here were people who were leaving the beaten path and really going out to see how most of the world lived, uh, because the majority of people on this earth don't live in houses like we do. And I, this, this just sort of fascinated me. The more I did it, the more people I met who were doing it. And so I started making this international connection of explorers and headed further and further off the path for several years. Your focus has been on tribal cultures and, and those that are in danger of, of disappearing culturally, so to speak. What are the qualities that a cultural explorer such as yourself needs to have to be able to do this? You need to have great self-control and make sure that you don't become part of the story, which has happened to me uh, against my wishes on a number of occasions, simply because I am the only person there most of the time. I do become part of the story, and I try to avoid that. My job is to be a fly on the wall and simply report what I'm seeing. Basically, these people who have no written language, the world doesn't know they exist, and I'm just there to try and give them some small voice. That's my job. It's a, a noble and interesting pursuit. I hope it is. <laughs> well, a participant versus observer. On occasion, sometimes you always can't maintain that. And there was an instance, I believe, in Benin, a country in Western Africa, I believe. Right. Yes. became an, yes. in, an inadvertent participant. Can you tell us about that? Well, in the blink of an eye, I went from being an observer to participant because I was photographing um, something called an igun ceremony where dancers, like dervish-like, twirl themselves into a trance and they channel dead ancestors who can come into their body and observe their family members in the tribe and see how things are going. And this, this, is a, this has been an ancient tradition there. But you're not supposed to touch these people because they are channeling the spirit world, the living dead. And the belief is that if you were to touch them, you might be dragged off with them when they leave. And so I'm photographing this. And one of the dancer's robes, he was twirling and twirling and got too close to me. And his robe sort of enveloped me. And when that happened, everything stopped. Uh, the the main witch doctor, the mambo, who was in charge of... Uh, the ceremony sent this little man out with, and I had a, a local driver who spoke the language. I always have to have somebody who helps me with these languages. I don't, I can't possibly learn them all. And he was explaining to me that this man had a little femur of a lion that was ancient. It was petrified. It was inlaid with cowrie shells. And he started passing this little lion femur all over my body. I likened it to a, a TSA screener using a wand at an airport. And he told me that the, the 
spirits, if any had entered me inadvertently, would be drawn out into the lion bone, and thus I would not be dragged off into the spirit world. And so, in effect, uh, I underwent an exorcism, as benign as it was, but uh, it kind of freaked me out when I realized what was happening. And obviously, I did not get dragged off into the spirit world. But uh, that was a great example of, against my wishes, becoming a participant instead of an observer. Now, after the spirits had been exorcised, did they treat you differently? The people, the whole village, crushed in around me. They were touching me. They were shaking my hands. They wanted me to put my hand on top of their children's heads, which in in Africa, any elder uh, who puts a hand on a child's head, that's giving them a blessing. And I'm usually the oldest person in these villages because they don't have long, long lifespans in these remote places. And so it was also explained to me that since I had gone to the edge of the spirit world and returned, I had great juju, great power now. And so these people wanted me to bless their children. They wanted to touch me and take some of that power from me. And so I, I did it uh, as quickly as I could with, without being impolite. I never want to offend people. But then I had to get out of there before it got out of hand. I didn't want them creating some kind of a myth around me because that would have destroyed the whole thing they were there to do in the first place. So I have to walk a fine line there. Let's talk about that. You, um, you're there to observe and be a chronicler of these, these people. Why and how do you do it? Why is a good question. I just, um, they seem to have worth. Their, their stories fascinate me. They are so different than we are. And yet, uh, I have never found anyone who is unhappy living in a mud hut in the middle of nowhere. I have never found anyone who would want to trade places with me for my life. And that fascinated me. I just wanted to see how the rest of the world lived. And and the further away, the better. And uh, the more I do that, the more I find commonalities between all of us. We're all just people underneath it all. But that's what it just it just grew in the making out of out of simple curiosity and from your observations, are these tribal cultures able to uh, maintain themselves or is are they under risk of of disappearing? Some have been there for thousands of years. Uh, I just had a story published about my concern of covid I mean I'm sure over the centuries there have been other pandemics. And I hope that a lot of the people I visited live remotely enough that it might pass them by. But yeah, if if something like COVID were to hit a little tiny village in rural Benin, it would probably destroy thousands of years of culture because there's no medical, at least medicine as we know it there. Uh, They have witch doctors, they have shamans, they have healers, they have magic. And uh, if you die, you die. It's just a simple fact. There's no lawsuits or anything like that there. It's a whole different way. So. I I have great concern of hoping that these cultures survive COVID, if nothing else. They've survived trekkers. They've survived people like me, because usually people that are going to go to the extent that I do are going to be aware of how fragile these cultures are and act accordingly. Worldwide, the languages are disappearing, are they not? Yes, yes. I'll I'll quote a a gentleman I've known for a while, a great anthropologist named Wade Davis, who said, uh, 
A half century ago, there were 35,000 languages on this planet. Today, there's somewhere between five and 6,000 in just half a century. And he believes of those, uh, less than 1,000 are being taught in schools. And uh, so there's an old saying in Africa that the, when the last speaker of a language dies, it's like a library burning. Because these oral societies have someone called a griot. He is the story keeper. And the entire history of that culture is inside that one person's mind. And when that person's gone? The whole culture is gone. So that's why I write my stories. I can't possibly become a historian for each of these tribes. All I can do is give little bits and pieces and hope that someone else down the road will be interested enough to look into it further and continue their histories for them. There was a uh, story that you told about Cambodia, and you came across a monk and a skull. Can you tell us about that story? Yes, he was a Theravada monk, which is the predominant school of Buddhism in, in Cambodia. It, it, it means teaching of the elders, Theravada does. And uh, rather than having any deity, it, it, it teaches you to deny yourself uh, personal satisfaction in this life to gain it in the next. And so uh, he had... Uh, he was one of 300 monks, I was told, who survived the Khmer Rouge. They went in, and then when, when they took over uh, Cambodia, they destroyed most of the monasteries. They executed the monks. They raped the nuns. This fellow went into the forest where he ended up acting as a doctor because he had a lot of knowledge of local roots and, and what have you, and, and he knew enough that it sustained him uh, going from village to village, treating people. But at the same time, he had to keep hidden from the Khmer Rouge because they would have executed him for being educated as a doctor. But anyway, he kept his rice bowl. And one day I I was looking at it because it was very shiny. And he told me it was his brother's skull who had been executed by the Khmer Rouge. And so he ate his meals out of his brother's skull every day as a reminder of how impermanent our life is on this earth. That's an impactful experience. How did it affect you? Very strongly at the moment. I've seen similar um, instances in many places. I've been to a lot of tribes where they mummify their ancestors, where they build fetishes to their ancestors. So there's a connection in in the rural parts of the world that we in the West don't have, not only don't we have, we have trouble understanding it runs so deep, this connection to our ancestors. Now, has he undertaken to rebuild that school of uh, Buddhism? The the last I heard, uh, some Theravada monks had come in from Vietnam to help reestablish some of the monasteries and help spread that teaching of Buddhism again. Uh, I was there several years after that. There were quite a few monasteries were flourishing. Most of the monks were quite young, so they're basically starting at the beginning. But yes, it's still a way of life there. And uh, I would say a, a majority of young men at least spend some time as a monk in their life before they decide if they want to be follow the religious or the secular path. It's just the way life is there. The Hadzabi people, Tanzania, that's Eastern Africa. What led you to these people? Why? I had known about 
their cousins, the San people in uh, uh, Namibia, who speak a Khoisan language of cliques. And uh, I was kind of fascinated by that. And I had also heard that the Hadzabe were cousins of these people who migrated east 400 some years ago. They live in a valley surrounded by Maasai, who are a warrior tribe to the very peaceful Hadzabe people. The Hadzabe are so, I hate the word primitive, but they're not advanced to the point of even using metalwork. So what they do is they trade the meat of the animals that they kill and the fur to the, with the Maasai and the Barbeg people who actually create the spear tips or their arrows and their spears and what have you. And of, of the approximate 3,000 Hadzabe that still exist in Tanzania, there's a small hunter-gatherer group of about 300. They're true nomads. These are the people I went to see. And uh, it wasn't easy finding them, but I did. And I got to spend some time with them. And that was, that was a highlight of my career because these were true cavemen, the way they were living. When you finally found their their village or their encampment. What did you see? Describe how they live. Well, we had driven all night through a rainstorm and uh, my driver left me at the edge of this big field and he said, walk that way because he had no idea where they would be. They're nomads. I was told they sleep on the ground or they sleep in caves, but there had been so much rain that as I walked along, I started seeing these grass huts. And what it was, is this very tall elephant grass that they had simply gathered together at the top and tied in a knot and hollowed out the center to make a very primitive little shelter. And I started finding these. So I knew, and I just kept following the paths and I started seeing footprints in the mud and I came up over a little rise and here's a big cave entrance. And there's six guys in there gathered around a tiny little fire squatting down in the dirt, wearing animal skins. And I felt like I'm looking at first man. That's what it was like. You know, like like coming on Adam and Eve for the first time. And, and you were by yourself? Uh, yes, at this point I was. I had a driver who left me. Uh, he he did not come with me. He just gave me a general direction. And he we agreed to pick me up at the same point at some point later on. Uh, he was going to come back for me when I was finished. And so, yeah, I was absolutely alone. And I got photos partly by using a, a little uh, bungee and wrapping my camera around tree branches with a timer, and partly just by giving it to one of these guys and showing him how to operate it, and he went crazy. He turned out to be a great photographer. In fact, the, the cover of my third book was taken by this caveman. He took the photo. And it's just a shot of me standing there with a bow and arrow with all these guys gathered around me. How, when you first approached them, I mean, they had to have looked up and, and had a look in their eyes as, who's this person coming in? Especially a you know, tall white guy walking into their... Yeah, well, basically they ignored me for several minutes. And uh, so they had a small fire going. And when they finally acknowledged my presence, they motioned for me to come up. And they, they made me sit down. They wanted me to watch very closely as they put out the fire. They made another fire using friction, and um, they put that fire out, and then they motioned for me. So I realized at that point I was being tested. Uh, uh, they weren't just going to start 
opening up to me unless I showed that I was serious. So after a couple of failed trials, uh, I made a small fire with using a, a, a stick and some friction. And at that point, I thought, okay, I've, uh, now I can start taking some photos and maybe wandering around asking questions. But they brought out this bone pipe that was filled with local ganja, and they lit that up and started passing it around. And they wanted me to smoke with them, which uh, I, I don't condemn or condone. It is uh, such a thing is usually an entree in remote villages. They, this is a very common thing. And I didn't want to be stoned at the time. I wanted to be an observer, but I don't think they would have talked to me or let me in anymore if I hadn't. So I got stoned with them. And I figured, okay, I've made a fire. I've smoked. Uh, what's next here? I should, we should, we, I should be fine, even though my head is swirling. And they handed me a bow and arrow. And they wanted to see if I could shoot. So I managed to embed one arrow in a tree. Uh, I could barely pull their bows. These guys stand about five feet tall, and they have bows that could drop an elephant. I could barely pull the thing. But I did fire one arrow, and it stuck in a tree, and that was good enough for them. It was like, come on, let's go. They all gathered up their arrows, and they all had their quivers, and they handed me a bow and a quiver, and they took off. So this is going to be a hunt, which is what I wanted to see, only I could not possibly keep up with them. They were so swift, and they disappeared into the bush. I'm just following their tracks in the mud, thank God for that, or I would have lost. And every now and then, one of them would pop up out of the bushes, and he would give me a hand signal. Go this way, go that way. Uh, so I knew they were watching me, and I, I wasn't on my own except I never heard anything until after maybe a half hour of this, suddenly there was a big commotion in front of me and this enraged baboon breaks cover, maybe 20, 30 feet from me and a very serious animal that can easily kill me. And before I had a moment to even be scared, uh, he had two arrows in him and he was on the ground and he was twitching because they use a neurotoxin on their arrowheads. And at that point, I realized there was an Hadzabe on either side of me who already had another arrow knocked in their bows. And uh, so I was covered the whole time. It took me a few minutes to realize that and even more for it to sink in that they hadn't just had me covered, but they were manipulating me into the place where they knew this baboon would attack me. And so they had set me up and used me as bait to draw it out. Then what happened? They decapitated the animal on the spot. They smeared my face with blood, which was explained that I was now part of the hunt. Uh, they field dressed it. I, I was really emotional at this point. I was angry. I was emotional. Um, I was shaking. I was trying to make notes and I couldn't do it. My hands were shaking so badly. And I finally realized I just had one of the greatest stories of my career. I just had to calm down in order to be able to to get it all together and write it. And um, so they we took we took the baboon back to the cave where we originally started. Uh, also, another thing about the, if if these people make a a kill of a large animal, the entire clan will relocate to it rather than bring the animal back. But in this case, the baboon was quite portable, so they took it back. They threw the whole carcass on a, on a fire, and they seared it, and they wanted me to eat the first ceremonial piece. 
And that was pretty much the story, except it really ended uh, a couple months later when I read this report and I, I'm, I have not verified it. I, I, I don't have a copy with me at the moment, but it was a long-term DNA study published by Stanford University in, I believe, 2004 that said this particular group of hunter-gatherers that I had been with was one of three distinct genetic groups from which all of mankind was descended. And that's what really struck me because if that was true, I had been used as bait on a baboon hunt by my own ancestors. That was the real end of the story. What does baboon taste like? Like tough burnt leather without any flavor. But it was the staple of their diet. I don't recommend it. How do you, how are those people faring now? Do you know? As far as I know, they're doing well. I, uh, I know one fellow who has a safari company in that area, and he does take people into their land to see it. You have to stop at a government office and get permission to enter the land, because like I say, this, this is mostly Maasai land, and the Hadzabe occupy a small part of it, and they move about. This is uh, west of Lake Manyara. It's called the Manyara Highlands, and you have a magnificent view of the south caldera of Ngorogoro Crater from their land. If, uh, if anyone knows that part of Africa, it's where the, the wall of the Great Rift Valley begins. Uh, I'm sure they're still doing well I mean, because they, while I said there were 3,000 Hadzabe, most of those have assimilated into prefabricated government housing and are getting food from the government. But the people that I was with have shunned the modern world completely, and they want to live as their ancestors have always lived. And I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't still be doing it. In your travels, I understand that uh, you in particular seek out shaman and witch doctors, monks, spiritual people of villages. Why is that? I have a need to believe. Uh, I was raised in the Catholic Church, but over the years I've developed issues with that and decided long ago that if I'm going to travel the world, I'm going to try and learn as much as I can from all of its different religions. And I've taken a little bit from every one of them and formed my own belief system. Uh, I don't know who's right or who's wrong. I don't know that there's just one path to follow. It's just an inner need I have to believe in something higher than myself. And so I always spend time looking into the local belief systems. And, and it's remarkable how similar many of them are all around the world. I'm going to follow up on that, but uh, of these people that you've encountered, what's the strangest thing that you've observed? Hmm. Something that really shook your idea of reality. Well, okay, I believe it was in Burkina Faso, I had gone there specifically, well, I was in country, but I had heard about a medicine man who was attributed with the ability to fly and make rain. Uh, his name was, I can't remember his name, and I'd mispronounce it now. Anyway, uh, he was somewhat famous uh, and, and was rather well-known in West Africa. So he wasn't hard to find. Uh, I was the, going through the forest, stopping at a number of villages, and they all directed me to where this guy was, and I found him. And he asked me through uh, my local guide where I came from. He had no concept of the United States or across the ocean. Uh, what, what he finally accepted was that I had walked many, many days to get there to find him. 
and uh, there was an airplane going overhead, high, high up. You could just see the contrail. And I pointed at it, and I said, I came in one of those. And that really didn't register with him. To him, it was a spirit. But he said, you were up there in one of those. He said, did you see God? And I said, no, I did not see God. And he said, well, then why were you up there? There was no other reason in his mind for that. Anyway, we had a long talk. I asked him about if he could control the weather. He was noncommittal. I asked him if he could fly. He was noncommittal. He gave me all these these uh, uh, gibberish answers. So I figured, okay, he's he's just going to treat me like a tourist, and there's nothing I can do about it. But I started to leave, and I turned around uh, after several seconds to get one last look. I thought I might take a photo of him from afar, and I swear that he was levitating a good three feet off the ground. Still in the same position he was seated in when I talked to him, but he was three feet off the ground. Now, that's about the weirdest thing I've ever seen, and um, I wouldn't try to explain it. Some things just can't be explained. That's right. I do believe that. So now circling back to, I think, the, the bigger picture from talking and, and being with the shaman, with the witch doctors, the healers, the monks, and with the tribal elders that you've encountered. What have you learned and, and how has it changed you? I know it's a big question, but. Yeah, I, I, I don't consider myself a very deep thinker. I don't have a great philosophical answer for that. It, it's made me humble. If nothing else, it, it's given me a respect for other people that I probably didn't have before I started traveling. Um, uh, I, I always bring to mind an old quote of, of Mark Twain's that uh, travel is dangerous to uh, ignorance and, and uh, narcissism because most of us are badly in need of it. And uh, travel has been the great equalizer. People are the same all over the world, and some guy living in a cave or in a mud hut is uh, no better or worse off than I am in my house. And they wouldn't trade places with me, and I wouldn't trade places with them. We're simply different. Sounds like there should be more to that answer, but I really don't have any uh, well anything you know, more to add than that to it. Yeah, but my sense of it is that also spiritually it's affected you in ways. I'm sure it has. I'm just not articulate enough to, to put all of it into words. Um, I'm probably far more spiritual than I was a decade ago, yes. And I do believe there's more after I leave this life. And uh, I hope that my respect for all of the other belief systems I have found might, might give me a little karma in the next life. We'll have to see what happens. Good karma is always good to have. Oh, yes, especially in my case. <laughs> <laughs> What's the future hold for you now? What, what are your plans uh, for well, I'm, I'm trying to write since I can't travel at the moment due to COVID. Um, I am trying through the Internet to stay in touch with some of the guides I've had around the world, see how their people are doing, uh, getting any news I can on remote areas. And I am making plans to travel when I can. I had to uh, uh, postpone a trip to Iceland. Uh, I, I should be there right now, actually. So I put that off for a year. After that, I kind of have a, a rough plan to go see Sri Lanka. 
And uh, we'll see after that. I mean, I plan to travel as long as I possibly can and see more. Travel has been my education. I, I never went to college. My education has been seeing the world and, and learning from the people who populate it. You've written three uh, very well-received books. The latest one is Baboons for Lunch, and this is the book that has the photograph taken by the Hazabi people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that photo was taken by a caveman. That is cool. And then the other books are uh, Vanishing Tales from Ancient Trails and Tears, Fear, and Adventure. Yes. Do you have another book in the works? I have enough stories for a book. I just haven't had the energy to put it together and seek a publisher. Plus, right now, publishing is kind of on hold. Um, Most of the people I work for, their publications are on hold, as is most of the world. We have to sit and wait out COVID before anything actually happens again. So I'm just trying to write my stories and keep everything assembled. And hopefully when the world starts to open, I, I would like to put another book together. And at some point, I'd also like to publish my memoirs. Uh, that may sound arrogant, but I think I've had a unique enough life that it might be readable. That would also be up to the audience to judge. Well, I hope it would also serve to encourage the next generation of explorers. Absolutely. Yeah, encourage those folks to set down their iPhones or whatever and actually experience the real world. If I have that effect on just a handful of people, I would be a very happy man. Well, James, it's been a real pleasure. You have a lot more stories to tell, so I hope you'll come back and join us and tell us some more. I'll be happy to join you anytime, and I appreciate you having me on here now. All right. Thank you very much, and we'll see you down the road. Very well. You take care. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.